Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. What is it about our necks that can make us so self-conscious sometimes if we're concerned about signs of aging? This area is often overshadowed by more prominent body parts, if you will, on social media or platforms where looks are concerned. But when you really ask people what bothers them about their appearance, often they refer to their neck. Whether it's some excess fat in the region or the quality of the skin or the loss of that nice sharp contour angle on profile. Yet just like anything else in terms of cosmetic procedure options, it can be confusing to sort out what's going to be truly effective and what might be short-sighted or have limitations and results. Luckily, we have with us today Los Angeles plastic surgeon Dr. Jason Rustayan to help fill in the gaps. He has a very well-thought-out, insightful approach to evaluation of the neck and treatment, and he shares some points you might not otherwise have thought about. Let's listen to that conversation. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jason Rustayan to our conversation today. Now, Dr. Rustayan is a board-certified plastic surgeon and a clinical professor of plastic surgery at UCLA. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Well, could you tell us a little bit about your practice? What type of patients or cases do you focus on mainly? Um, the majority of my practice is in facial aesthetics. I do a lot of rhinoplasty and facial rejuvenation, but uh, I did a subspecialization fellowship training in aesthetic surgery, and that covered the whole gamut from breast and body up to the face uh, as well. And so everything in the aesthetic space I do enjoy doing and, and is part of my practice, but I kind of subspecialize in the face specifically. Yeah. So you, you can do it all, but I can do it all, but I really like the you face. You like to focus on the face, <laughs> yes. yeah, the, the head and neck area. Well, we're here to talk about neck rejuvenation, and this is something that I think is um, an interesting topic to many people. They've wondered uh, about the neck, and as we get into that, I wonder if you could explain to the listeners what happens to the neck as we age, what happens in terms of appearance, configuration, shape, that kind of thing. Like anything in your body, there's multiple layers, right? And the, you mm -hmm. know, starting from most superficially in the skin, we all know that you lose collagen and elastin in your skin. So the skin, you know, gets a little bit more lax. But almost just as important, or if not even more important, is that we lose a lot of facial fat and neck fat. So all our subcutaneous fat, I mean, a really good, easy example, you could just look at your hand and remember back to when you were a kid to now, and you could see how much, you know, 
like you see all the tendons in your hand and all the veins and all the aged hand, basically yeah. The, yeah. all the structures below. And I think that is one of the components that's not talked about as much, but is probably one of the most critical because, you know, just deep to the skin, there's a lot of structures there. And if we go to the next layer after the, the actual skin and the fat that's right under it is uh, something called the platysma muscle. And you'll hear mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about platysmal bands. And this is why you got to be really careful of, you know, things that reduce that fat under the skin, just like simple lipo even. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's been plenty of patients as, as somebody gets older, what happens with that muscle is that that muscle, you use it over and over, over again, and it shortens and it bowstrings essentially. It starts pulling away. You know, mm -hmm. our necks are meant to be like 90 degree angles, but if this muscle keeps contracting and shortens over time, it starts pulling away from that 90 degree and getting a more obtuse angle. And so that, really is probably the more important factor almost that carries the skin with it. And you start seeing this muscle more as we mm -hmm. age. So that platysma muscle is kind of a thin fan-shaped or sail-like muscle, and that can start to sag like a sagging sail of a boat um, in, in one way of thinking. Yeah. And what you're saying is that changes the nice angle of our neck that we have on profile. Right. So there is less less shape to it, less contour. And that frustrates people, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then it doesn't stop there. There's structures deep to that muscle. So deep ah. to that muscle, you have deep fat centrally, and then mm -hmm. you have these glands called submandibular glands that are more off to the side. And um, actually just published an MRI study that showed that the volume of this gland under your jawbone increases as we age. And this was done by looking at MRIs over different age groups over, you know, hundreds. And um, yeah, as you know, with the, each passing decade that there is more volume, statistically significant, you know, volume of this gland below the jawbone. So there's an element of descent and, and enlargement, likely. I think the... Um, yeah, so bulging would be bulging, a result. Bulging, yeah. And so this is also pushing on that muscle because it lies deep to it and causing some of that obtuseness too. Right. And so it's really important. It's kind of multifocal and, you know, more superficial treatments don't do a lot for all... You know, the problem really lies deep. It's mostly, it's mostly these yeah. deep structures. And then... That, that skin and muscle interface the, with the platysma, that's a very superficial muscle. It's, they're very interconnected. And so this a combination of shortening and also you know, kind of getting pushed from behind is all kind of causing that obtuseness in the neck that's really difficult to reverse. And if you think about it, you gotta recreate space deep to that muscle. You have to um, recontour essentially all those mm. structures deep to that muscle to be able to get you know, the ideal neckline back. So when people come to you for a consultation about their neck, what are the main concerns they, they express to you? Is it this angle of the neck or, or what do you typically find? And then I'm curious, um, men versus women, if there's a difference in terms of what they're concerned about. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's very few things where your aesthetic end goal between men and women are very similar. This is, the wow. neck is one of the few places where you know, it's nice to have a strong jawline. So yeah. everyone, and, and this is another thing that goes back all throughout history since the Egyptians, uh, you know, the symbol of the, our aesthetic society um, has been Nefertiti for forever. And there's, there's a reason yes. that this was the ideal 
even back in the Egyptian era that, you know, having that 90 degree, you know, neckline um, yeah. and, you know, that long neck. Um, yes. So this is something not new to our to any culture and one that's probably the most uniform. I mean, a lot of other things have like changed over time, but this is one that I think has um, stood the test of time. And this is exactly what patients ask for. I mean, we still use the criteria of the paper from 1980 of Ellenbogen in academic, you know, uh, for, for when we're talking about the ideal neck criteria, yeah, um, the standard, you know, the, yeah. the gold standard, there's like, you know, five criteria and probably, you know, in reality, the most important is really getting this shadowing along the jawline. Mm -hmm. And this is something that wasn't one of those criteria, but really getting a strong, seeing the highlight of your jawbone mm -hmm. with a distinct straight border, which is really created by negative space or therefore shadowing just below it. Yeah. So what happens is yeah. when we get this bulk and this kind of, you know, these ups and downs below that bone, it takes highlights and it makes that highlight of your jawbone, you know, less visible and, you know, kind of hidden. Right. And so, right. you know, that strong jawline, you know, that, that, uh, that we're looking for is really created by, you know, seeing the actual jawbone, right? The jawbone is straight. It's just that all these structures that are deep to it will fall below it and make it look lumpy bumpy or, or full, take you away from that nice straight angle that you wanna see that straight highlight along the jaw. Because it really yeah. frames the face, if you think about it. It frames your lower border of your face, just like your hair and your brows, you know, brows frame your eyes, your hair frames the upper portion of your face. Your jawline is so important to framing that lower border of the face. And when it's, you know, irregular, we don't really like that. It's not aesthetic, right? I'm reminded of a book. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Nora Ephron, who was a very witty and clever writer who had a lot of social commentary in her work. But she wrote a book called I feel bad about my neck. And I think when that book came out, so many people, women in particular, but everybody really could just sort of relate to that concept of, yeah. you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I don't like how my neck looks. And so yeah. this is a real concern. And I'm so glad you're here to talk about it because um, we haven't really focused too much on the neck per se in these podcasts. So this is perfect. Honestly, I think it's one of the earlier signs of aging out there too. Mm -hmm. I think the eyes are a common one. And then the mm -hmm. neck is often in, depends on the person, of course, but often they show up before jowls. So a lot of times people are looking to improve their neck before yes. even considering the facelift, just yes. like they're considering doing maybe their upper lids or lower lids before the facelift. It's something that does tend to show up a little earlier and affects a lot of people. And again, it's one of the things that I think bothers both men and women equally and is always high on the list for my facial rejuvenation patients, always high. It's all often number one, I will Interesting. say. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, then let's really get into some of the treatment options. Could you sort of walk us through everything from kind of minimally invasive treatments to surgical options that are out there? Yeah, so much depends on the individual, of course, as always. It's never a one-size-fit-all with the appropriate treatment. As far as talking about more minimally invasive treatments, I don't think there's a lot of great ones, honestly. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I think one thing you can consider doing, and I do tell this even to my surgical patients that I do surgery for, if we want to preserve that neckline long term, it is reasonable to consider Botox for that platysmal muscle because, again, we already know that's part of the factor here, right? It is pulling, contracting, shortening, mm -hmm. and pulling away from the neck. And so if you can slow that process down and calm it down, it's going to help preserve the contour we created after surgery, but even, you know, before surgery as well. 
I mean, if you've ever seen actually like a Bell's palsy patient who has facial paralysis on one side, which involves the platysma as well, you'll notice their neck always looks better on that paralyzed side. Mm -hmm. And so that would be one of the few minimally invasive treatments that I think have long-term success. If you're a really young patient and you just have a lot of subcutaneous fat just under the skin, and this is part of seeing the plastic surgeon who covers all bases. You don't want to see the guy that is a one-trick pony and only offering liposuction. You don't want to see the person that's only offering minimally invasive treatments. You know, when, when you only have one thing in your toolbox, you're going to kind of only have one recommendation that's when right. it may not be the right one. That's very wise. So, you know, I think as far as in the younger patient with a lot of subcutaneous fat, once you get into your mid-30s, I think this the game's over. Um, because, again, we know you're going to lose that subcutaneous fat. So if you're like in your mid-20s to, you know, upper 20s, low 30s, maybe and you just genetically have a lot of subcutaneous fat, and you could test this for yourself by flexing that platysma muscle and feeling is the fat mostly centered right under the skin. In those patients, I think liposuction or Kybella, and Kybella has been very interesting because Kybella came and really made a lot more awareness about the neckline. Kybella is basically um, deoxycholic acid. This is a enzyme that lives actually in your gut and breaks down the fat that we eat. And so, um, somebody figured out that this may be interesting to try to dissolve fat under your skin, and it does work. The companies really liked it because it was an injectable, it's something you could do in the clinic. And so it was actually purchased by Allergan, a lot of money went into it, and then, um, and which is the same creator of Botox and uh, Juvederm yeah. fillers. Yeah. And so a lot of you know, marketing and, and dollars went into making awareness of the neck, trying to promote this product. But as people started using it, they realized the recovery is worse than liposuction because you're dissolving all this fat yeah. and your body has to clean up the mess. Good way to put it. It's not a good combo. So it just burns the fat. And then all of a sudden it causes a lot of inflammation because your body's like, whoa, there's a lot of dead fat here. Let's clean up the mess. There's a lot of swelling and a more difficult, painful recovery compared to liposuction because mm -hmm. liposuction there's some surgical trauma but you're sucking out all the fat you're getting rid of a lot of the mess yeah, good point and liposuction you get done in one treatment whereas with kybella often it required a minimum of two if not three if yes. not four and in those cases it was just more unpredictable and more costly than liposuction yeah the expense too you know there's the rare patient that really wants to just do the injectable and doesn't want liposuction you know but if i really educate my patients i almost never use kybella even though it does work to some degree mm -hmm. but it's just when you break it down, it's just not the right answer, yeah. right? It's, you know, multiple recoveries likely to be more expensive. It's going to spread out your result over like six months, if not more. And um, just didn't make any sense. But, you know, it did open the door to more awareness of, of the neck and people are talking about it more. So that was one of the, the positive benefits of it, I guess. But that would be in the minimally invasive space. I know there's a lot of minimally invasive treatments like Althera and then, um, you know, now there's like Facetide and Morpheus and all these things. So ultrasound and radiofrequency treatments and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's break down what's going on here. So basically these are devices that are creating heat energy just deep to your skin. I just explained that one of your most important factors in aging is your fat, right? Mm -hmm. Our skin loses fat. So why are we gonna go and put heat energy that's gonna burn the fat? Your fat is one of the more sensitive tissues in your body to heat. Mm -hmm. It melts really easily and it gets damaged really easily in that process. Mm -hmm. So it does not make a lot of sense to be going and creating scar tissue. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the other thing I love. You know, Every time they talk about it, they're like, oh, it creates collagen. 
scar tissue is collagen. Yes. So I really wish people were a little bit more transparent with that and said, well, it creates scar tissue under your skin, not really collagen. Yeah. Collagen sounds better, of course. Everyone's like, well, your skin has collagen. Yeah, yeah, it does, but it's a very different organized collagen. Yeah. It's not scar tissue. And we all know that you cut your skin, it doesn't, you know, the scar shows up, not normal skin. You know, they're very different. It, it's thickening, but it's really not even thickening the skin. It's creating scar tissue under the skin. Yeah. In the meanwhile, burning that fat, creating irregularities in that in that process. Mm -hmm. And the way it's purported to work, it's gonna cause shrinking of some of the collagen fibrils that will pull the skin in different directions. But honestly, the relative benefit from that compared to the downsides to me does not make any sense. Yeah. Personally, in my practice, I've seen a lot of frustrations mm. with it. Why do so many different versions of the same thing get repackaged and come back? Obviously, there's no one successful one, yeah. right? Like if something works really well, if it was the magic pill, it's here to stay. That's right. You know, Botox never went anywhere. Yeah. It worked really well. Now there's some competitors that showed up in the market, but they all work exactly the same way. Yeah. They keep trying to repackage the same technologies and it's been going on for more than a decade. And um, that's really insightful. What happens is the, also the downside, right? We don't talk enough about the downside. When you later want to get something really fixed right and you're going to end up deciding to do surgery, because right now we're too far away from anything that gets close to surgery. It creates a lot of scar tissue, increases your risk of complication and skin loss, and you know it's, it's a problem. If you've done those, those procedures beforehand. If you've done those, yeah, because it, it's not selective, right? Can't sit there and be like, oh, I want to burn this one little thing and this, you know, it's going to burn everything, right? right? It's, it's heat energy. That's all it is. You call it lasers, heat energy, radio frequency, ultrasound, they create heat. All it is is heat. Yeah. And it burns and it does not burn selectively. And that's why all these minimally invasive devices, they all have to work superficially because if you go any deeper, they're going to cause really big problems and they know they can't do that. And that's where you need a surgeon under direct vision doing, you know, delicate surgery and not, you know, a device that's just kind of doing guesswork under the skin. And so when we fast forward, it's already starting to come to the surface. Um, you know, I've, I talked to a lot of beauty editors and stuff like that, and I always tell them this and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. We're like always trying to fill. But then this is like, you know, mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, I've seen more and more things on social media and posts basically frustrated with these devices unfortunately look if there's something comes out that i think really works well and you know helps patients a lot and really you know just like cool sculpting too was all the rage for how long and now like everyone talks about it just collects dust in their clinic yeah nobody's using it there's been too many problems within and not enough of a result well then as we shift our thinking from minimally invasive treatments what do we have available to us surgically yeah. And again, it goes back to the anatomy of the individual because there's so much variance from person to person as far as all those factors. But let's right. again, go back to what is the anatomy and what are the factors that we need to look at? It's the skin and the skin fat, which I told you rarely the skin fat is a problem. Not a hundred percent, but you have to be, you know, really somebody who holds on to a lot of fat to have that be an issue. Then there's the platysma muscle. Do we have to treat the platysmal muscle? Tighten it, get rid of bands, right? Because mm -hmm. some people have really dynamic bands that really pull hard and do we want to treat those? Mm -hmm. What's deep to that, is there a lot of deep central fat? And again, this is, you know, the fat that's different than your skin fat. It's more fibrous, it's harder. You can't really liposuction it well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost, the best analogy I could give you is like the, the dad bod beer belly. My dad, <laughs> For instance, you know, rest in peace. He always was like, oh, can you lipo me? And I was like, no, you have no skin fat. 
he had, you know, all a mental fat. He had yeah. the deep organ fat. Deep, yeah. Yeah, and that's standing behind all the abdominal wall, all the musculature. And but that's where his fat kept gaining and gaining. You know, yeah. it's like you know, part of aging. It's that deep fat seems to grow, and the skin fat seems to decrease as we age, yeah, for sure. Right. Um, and so, so when you have a lot of that deep fat, then you often have also. Um, the glands that we talked about, the mm -hmm. submandibular glands. Mm -hmm. And so we can feel for those. They're firmer. Mm -hmm. I always, in, in my consults, I have the patient take their own finger and feel such a good idea. the gland because they'll be like, oh, yeah, there's a bulge there. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last factor is the digastric muscle, actually, that we haven't talked about yet. So, you know, right next to that central fat and, and you know, more... Um, towards the midline or centrally from the gland is the digastric muscle mm -hmm. that also tends to fall as we age and take mm -hmm. a more obtuse angle. We can't really reposition it back up. There's no really good way to, you know, it's attached to a bone called the hyoid that mm -hmm. I think drops as we age too. And so that we often have to shave a little bit as well to get the best contours. Mm -hmm. So these are all factors that we have to look at. And then last one again was how much lacks skin. Do we have to remove skin or not? You'd be amazed, and I've been amazed, how much I can do all this kind of minimally invasive through a small incision under the chin mm -hmm. and recontour everything and the power of the contraction of the skin. Mm -hmm. Your body does not like empty spaces, and so when you recontour all the deep structures, the skin molds to that new structure. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you know, it's like the hypotenuse of the right triangle, right? We're trying to create a right triangle, but the hypotenuse, you know, is a shorter distance than the right triangle. Yeah. This is going back to geometry. I don't yeah. know if all our listeners right, remember. Right. Well, so basically we want to get rid of that diagonal and create a, an angle back. We're trying to get rid of the diagonal. The diagonal is a shorter distance, a shorter length than the right angle. So often you'd be surprised. It's not really too much skin. It's the contouring again, that's the problem. So this is a particularly important in males because males also have tend to have thicker skin that contract better. Mm. So I've done all the way up to men in their 70s. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of pushed, my own patients have pushed me. I'm like, ooh, I don't know, you're getting kind of old. You know, I don't know how much collagen elastin you have. I don't know how well your skin's gonna bounce back yeah. to this, to, to this contour I'm gonna create. They're like, I don't care. I don't want the incisions behind the ear. Yeah. yeah because yeah. when we have to remove skin, we, we rarely wanna do it under the chin because it's a visible area. We wanna do it behind the ear and down the hairline. Mm -hmm. But that's a problem in a male who wears their hair really short. Sure. So, um, you know, they don't want to go through that healing process of a potentially visible scar and they, you know, sure. some are bald even. I mean, you know, the list goes on. So um, I've been amazed at the power of contraction of the skin. And in males, I pretty much almost always just do a, a small incision under the chin, recontour, and then the, the body takes, you know, the skin contracts and it looks really amazing. It gives you that right angle back. It's surprising what the skin can do. Yeah. And in females, as you get more aging and or they want to facelift at the same time because they have jowling or something else, then often we're doing a traditional face and neck, but always recontouring the neck with that and looking at these glands and all the deep structures. And then again, we remove skin from back behind the ear and down the hairline and it heals beautifully and hides really well. And it's the best place to try to remove skin because you're able to move in that vector posteriorly where you, you want to, you know, even the patient in the clinic will sit there and kind of pull their own skin back towards their hairline, right? Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Another way of simulating your own facelift and neck lift is just laying down and taking a mirror and be like, oh, I like what I see, <laughs> right? Because gravity's not, you know, <laughs> right. taking this role anymore. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of my main algorithm approaching the, the neck in both males and females.
Yeah, I think that's wonderful that you really take the time to look at the anatomy of each individual patient. And then, you know, and this is part of your good training, then you structure a procedure. Tailor. Tailor, exactly, directly to what that person needs because it's just not a standard thing for everybody. It's not a one-size-fit-all. And anyone who approaches plastic surgery, especially facial aesthetic surgery, with a one-size-fits-all type of approach, you're going to only, you know, you're going to be successful percentage of the time because you right. you have to look at the underlying fundamental issues and you have to address them. Otherwise, you will, you and your patient will be frustrated. Yeah. Well, we've touched on facelift a little bit. I'm just curious, how often in your practice are you doing an isolated neck lift versus a facelift that would include the neck? You know, more and more these days, I feel like isolated necks are just becoming more and more common. Yeah. And I think it goes both ways. I think the issue is a lot of times patients have a certain picture in their mind with even the word facelift or yeah. what they've seen. Right. And it's really hard to break that sometimes because, you know, if you really think about it, you don't see good plastic surgery. It's invisible. Like you don't know the person that had really good plastic surgery done because it looks so natural and you're that's, like, wow, they just look good. Yeah, that's the idea. And yeah, but you really see bad plastic surgery. It's you very obvious. can't miss it because it's so <laughs> yeah. obvious and terrible. And so, you know, there's a skewing effect where, you know, people think of like the worst plastic surgery they've seen and the obvious ones because that's what they're like, well, that person had a face of it's obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that wasn't done well, <laughs> you yeah, know? And yeah. so sometimes I do notice some patients come in with that mentality. And so it's like, I gotta like, you know, often I break it by showing them good, you know, before and afters and or explaining like, look, you know, that exactly what I just told you. But I also don't like, I don't wanna sit there and convince people to ever do a procedure. No, you know? of course not. And I don't mind that. Like if somebody wants to start with just the neck and like they wanna ease in, they don't wanna take the full leap, you know, because as long as I'm not burning a bridge for the future, like if they get the neck done and then they're like, oh, I want to do a facelift later, no big deal. We did, you know, half the work and now we got to do the other half. Nothing I did is going to hurt the process of moving on to the facelift later. And second of all, you know, sometimes, you know, all that bothers them is the neck. But I'm very careful when somebody has a bad neck and a lot of jowling. If they do, you're going to be frustrated by the jowling and because the jowling all of a sudden will show up more sometimes yeah. because you could try to treat it a little bit, but you can't treat it the same way as you would a facelift because all of a sudden you created the shadow under the jawline, but the jowling now is really outlined. It's more noticeable. It's like it's highlighted now. It's more noticeable sometimes because now it's like, oh, well, everything's so shadowed and nice and recontoured below that you created this like little, you know, real nice outline of the actual jawline now, which it's was, crisp. it's crisp. Yeah against the gel that you know was kind of hiding under a bunch of fat it was kind of continuous with the neck fat and so you got to be careful of that one and in those i really you know if it's if it's bad particularly obvious then i you know i let them know what i see and, and usually then gonna do the face and neck together because again i'm very results oriented but you know i want my patients to be happy first and foremost mm -hmm. but you know i have a crystal ball that they don't you know, I know what the future will hold to a better degree than they do. Of mm -hmm. course, I don't know 100%, yeah, of, sure. you know. But with your experience and training. But my experience, I have to help coach them to some degree if I feel like they're making the wrong decision yeah. for themselves. Well, but I never, you know, you never want to push somebody into something they don't want to do. Oh, of course. Well, I think yeah. a lot of patients don't realize that even a facelift 
if that's the primary procedure, even a face lift will affect the neck. Absolutely. Well, it just makes the jawline better. And if you're going to all of a sudden outline the jawline, you kind of want to, you know, get the best possible jawline in the process. And the other thing is that there's so many terms thrown around these days with facelift. Is it the full facelift? Is it the mini? Is it the, you know, lower facelift? Like, honestly, it gets confusing for even me because different surgeons will call it different things. And we really need to, like, get more standardization, I think. And so, like, this is this and this is that. Like, I think a full face to me at this point means a brow lift and a facelift because it's addressing the full face, which the brow is part of that. But, you know, a lower facelift is cheek down, essentially. And really a facelift, the best way to think about its strong suit is the jawline. It's Mm -hmm. removing the jowl. It doesn't do a lot for your nasolabial folds. It does, you know, very minimal there. It creases from the nose down to the corner of the mouth. Exactly. So the smile line. Um, and that, you know, I rely more on fat grafting. And then for the cheek, you know, I do something called the high smaz facelift, which does address, it moves the cheek up a little bit. Yeah, like an internal corset. Yeah, but now with the benefit of fat grafting, I can really augment that. And honestly, you could probably achieve with fat grafting what I could have with the high smaz as well. Right. If right. not, but I, I do both still, you know, so I'm still moving your own native cheek, but then also adding some fat to augment that because it's not just about getting rid of the jowl. It's about getting the right contouring of the face, just like we just talked about with the neck. Yeah, great. Well, as we think about a surgical neck lift, um, where would you perform that for a patient? And what would you tell them to expect in terms of recovery and downtime? Yeah, so for surgical neck lifts, um, you know, we do, um, I keep everyone overnight, um, just because, and, and this for face and neck lifts, just mm-hmm. because the main thing is there's a lot of vascularity to your face and we want to avoid blood something. Vessels. Yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of blood vessels in the face. And what happens is under anesthesia and, you know, and or sedation, your blood pressure is nice and low through the whole procedure. And, you know, it's minimal bleeding, of course, so we could see what we're doing. And then you wake up and then when you wake up, the blood pressure could be all over the place. So it's really important to monitor that as you're waking up. Those first 12 hours are most critical to make sure you don't have spikes in your blood pressure. And that's why, you know, it's really nice to be able to keep somebody overnight with a nurse monitoring them. The blood pressure is constantly monitored. We could treat it if we need to, but we keep it nice and low. What's the danger if the blood pressure goes up? The blood pressure goes up, then, you know, you have blood vessels that we just cut through that we cauterized, but they were used to a a lower pressure head. And now your blood pressure went up and then it, it could blow one of those clots and you could have bleeding under the skin. That isn't the end of the world. You just want to see it recognize it right away and take care of it right away so you just Perfect. go in there you you now you know where the bleeding is you can you know cauterize that blood vessel again you can, but you want to most importantly wash out all that blood because a big blood collection of the skin will make your recovery take forever and so we mm-hmm. really you know step one is to try to avoid it again with good blood pressure monitoring but if it happens you just want to catch it early take care of it right away go back you know often you could do it at the bedside if it's small but if it's more extensive you're going to go back to the operating room sure. not the end of the world sure. it would be a short procedure to yeah. just kind of wash things out after that we um you know in terms of your recovery your sutures and drains may stay in up to a week then after that you know there's still some swelling in the face because you're early in the recovery process but I think most patients honestly look pretty presentable within a month. You know, I think somewhere around two to three weeks, they start really like seeing enough of the swelling leave and should have pretty minimal bruising at that point and easily covered with concealer that they can like think about going out, you know, with friends and family and stuff like that. And 
Um, I wouldn't go, you know, plan your, your wedding um, at that at the two, three <laughs> right. week point, but I think you'd be fine to go out and go back into the social scene, live life essentially, and continue to recover because you're not at the end point yet. I'd say at six weeks, you usually look really good. Oh, great. Six weeks, you could actually show up in your wedding dress and, yeah. and um, you know, everyone will be like, look how beautiful you look. Yeah, that's so great. But but it's still, there's still some swelling there, but honestly, the swelling sometimes looks pretty good because again, we're trying to create that fullness, that youthfulness. Um, and so, you know, it's not a bad thing always. By three, four months, things are all full strength. You could go back to any activity you want and you don't have to worry about anything at that point. And from there, just really a question of your incisions getting better and better over time because mm -hmm. scars mature over the course of two years, get softer, lighter, everything else. But honestly, the incisions with good placement are minimally visible. Is oh, great. Worst case, if you're one of those people that create a lot of redness, you, you just laser um, some of that redness you can away. Treat and, it. Yeah. And okay. You can treat it pretty easily. Makes sense. Yep. Um, and then, so... Uh, uh, hematoma or blood collection, uh, bleeding is, is one significant risk. Are there any other significant risks that go along with uh, such a procedure that you might worry about? You know, we always talk about nerve injuries. Um, you know, the funny thing with the neck, actually, there's something um, that we should talk about is there's something called the pseudo-marginal mandibular nerve injury. And what happens is people, especially with what we call full denture smile. So when you are one of those people that smile really big and show both your upper teeth and your lower teeth as you smile, mm -hmm. you have a lot of platysmal involvement with that lower lip. So that muscle is working hard to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, that muscle that we talked about, the platysma that we wanna treat, interdigitates with your lower lip. Um, it's called the DAO, but the, the depressor anguli oris that is involved with your lower lip. Yeah, they work together, yeah. They work together, and so, you know, it's one of those things where you can't have your cake and eat it too. We, we need to treat the platysma aggressively often if somebody especially has like really aggressive bands. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a percentage of people and not a small percentage, I would say, you know, probably like 10% as they're going through the healing process, their smile is going to look different. Mm -hmm. Their smile will, will sometimes the lower lip won't, you know, will activate a little bit more on one side than the other, but just yeah. because the, you know, the muscle is healing, mm -hmm. it's involved in this healing process. And of course it's not going to flex its best or back to normal yet. Yeah. And so that takes some time. It takes, you know, sometimes just a few weeks and some people and some people longer it can take months. And so you'll see some people in the recovery process, like, is this okay? And, yeah. and, you know, sometimes they don't notice and I notice it. Yeah. That's a good thing for people to know about. That's great that you're discussing this. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the easy, the easy answer is like, hey, just don't smile your biggest during the healing <laughs> right. process and I'll take care of that. Um, but but it's, it's one of those things like you can't get that best neck contour and treat the bands and everything and then expect it to immediately be exactly have it go back. So that's something that's relatively common that people should be aware of and know about. Mm -hmm. And I point out to them, especially, you know, when I see that full denture smile pre-op, I definitely make an effort to let them know, hey, like when you're going through the healing process, I don't know if it's going to be weeks. I don't know if it's going to be months because everyone's different. It's just there's total randomness. It may be not happening at all. But don't be surprised if you see a little difference there. And what happens is the side that's more asleep of the muscle, that lower lip stays higher. Whereas the side that's more awake will pull a little harder because that's what they're used yeah. to. Yeah. Really easy to Botox um, as well. If you're going through the healing process and it bothers you, just Botox the side that's pulling. To even it out. Oh, that's a good idea. So it's not a huge deal, but it's something yeah. that if you don't coach them on and like let them know like, hey, this is actually normal, yes. um, you know, they could be frustrated or disappointed by in that early phases. So yeah, it's, it's good to be aware of. Yeah. 
And then of course, like a real nerve injury is a possibility too. And that's where it never, you know, it doesn't come back, knock on wood. I mean, that's exceedingly rare. Haven't seen it yet in, in my own personal practice. We talk about it, so it's- It's a possibility. It's a possibility, very, very rare. Yeah. We talked before about minimally invasive treatments and then we're talking about surgical treatments. Do you ever stage procedures to, say, treat the contour of the neck first, whether it's a fat issue, muscle issue, whatever, and then do something later for skin texture or quality of the skin? Or what's your philosophy on that kind of thing? Yeah, um, it totally depends. So often we will. We will stage things in the patient that wants to do that. Like I just mentioned, hey, I just want to focus on the neck right now. We'll deal with the face and everything else later all the time. And like I said, as long as I'm not a burning a bridge or doing something that I know is not going to work well for them, I'm totally game with that. I don't, I don't mind splitting up the procedure. But often the opposite happens where patients, they only have time in their lives for one recovery. They don't want to, ah, yeah. and you got to think of it that way. It's so individualized, right? So some people have a really busy life and really can only do it during this one time and want to get as much done as possible. And if anything, sometimes you got to be like, hey, you're trying to take on too much. Like I have some patients, they want to do brow, face, neck, uh, lids, fat grafting, and a revision rhinoplasty, not a great idea. That's just too much surgery. Usually you don't want surgery to go beyond eight hours. That really, in an ideal world, that's kind of, it's not an absolute cutoff, but I think for cosmetic elective procedures, I think eight hours Mm -hmm. is a good, you know, safety measure, if not even six. So Mm -hmm. uh, I try to plan accordingly for that and do as much as what the patient wants within that timeframe. And so I think in terms of the skin, this comes up a lot, with a facelift. So I do a deep plane facelift. I was trained by Fritz Barton, um, who you know developed the high SMAS and a deep plane. So in your face, just like we just talked about the platysma, the platysma is continuous with this structure called the SMAS in the face. So that's an acronym. It's a fascial network. It's like gristle tissue. Yeah. Imagine it's the ligaments and tendons of the face that you know attaches to the facial muscles. So the facial muscles are more central on your face towards your nose. When you move away from them towards the ear, then there's this thicker interdigitating network of a lot of like collagen fibers, essentially what we call fascia. Mm-hmm. What the acronym stands for is superficial musculoapneurotic um, system. And they call it system mm-hmm. because you know, it, was, it was discovered in 1976 actually, it wasn't even that long ago. Um, the old facelift was a skin lift. You know, originally the word rhytidectomy is another term for facelift. You know, the original facelifts were literally just cutting out wrinkles like directly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, eventually they started planning the incisions in more favorable regions by the ear and in the hairline. And then it, it was a skin only facelift. And then starting in the seventies with a guy named Skoog, he started uh, manipulating this SMAS tissue and he started doing that in the earlier 70s and then in the mid 70s, they figured out what that tissue was, <laughs> which was <Yeah>. the SMAS. <laughs> right. After the fact, yeah. And then my mentor and another guy named uh, Dr. Hamra, both centered in Dallas actually and trained together at NYU. And they really pioneered the deep plane facelift and the deep plane means you're deep to that SMAS layer. Below it. So you're closer to the facial nerves and just deep to this layer is where all your nerves live and it's got to be done with somebody with good training and and (laughs) carefully. Um, But in the right hands, it's a great approach that um, you're farther from the skin. And the other type of facelift is where you just lift up the skin and start just throwing sutures in Mm -hmm. in that SMAS layer to kind of reposition things and pull up or whatever with sutures. And that's called application. Uh, Or sometimes there's another one called smasectomy where you're removing a little portion of that SMAS layer and then suturing it, but not ever working deep to it. And then the deep plane is where you're working under the SMAS layer. 
I have been trained in all of the techniques. I like the high smaz um, because again, it does allow me to stay a little deeper from the skin, allows me to get the deepest portion of the smaz. It's a more hardy purchase and I, I could position it to more stable structures because it's the thickest portion of the smaz. And I think I get a little bit more release from it. And then this is the long-winded version of what I was trying to explain with the skin. I could do skin treatments more aggressively because um, imagine I'm deeper from the skin. I could do a chemical peel at the same time. So there's less risk to... Without risk because you're preserving more vascularity of the skin. If you're dissecting right under the skin and lifting all that up, you're causing some injury to the blood vessels that are supplying it. Yeah. Whereas if I'm staying deeper from it, those blood yeah. vessels are totally intact to the skin. And so... So it really affects your timing of the various things that you'd like to do to treat that patient. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's one of the important factors. Also, I think it just makes a lot of people have really good smaz skin interface. And so why do I want to disrupt that? Like if they have perfect smoothness here, yeah. like I'm really just trying to treat the jaw and recontour again. Yeah. So why am I trying to disrupt that? Um, and, you know, I think it heals faster. Good point. But, you know, sometimes I have to rely on the plication. If somebody had prior surgery, I didn't know what the last surgeon did, and it's not safe to go in that deep plane. Yep. Well, I'm curious if you might have a little story about a particular patient you'd like to share, maybe somebody who had some neck concerns and treating that really had a positive impact on their life, or is that just everybody? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, I will say a lot of my happiest patients have been my cosmetic patients. I think some of my most grateful yeah. thank you notes. Um, I had one, you know, so I give lectures every once in a while for patients and usually they had me do that prior to COVID. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of gone away ever since. <laughs> These was in-person lectures. Yeah, sure. I had a patient that, you know, I guess came to that one of those lectures. I had no idea, you know, I treated her. And she literally came to a lecture again, just to stand up at the end of the lecture on her own and say, this was one of the most amazing things I did for myself. He did such a fabulous job. I, I felt obligated to come and do this. I mean, honestly, you would completely think like, oh, this, this guy paid for her. Like, this is like too good to be true. Yeah, um, that is so cool. And again, this patient has been fabulous and so grateful and obviously a really nice person and, yeah. and really like thinks about others. Um, yeah. But you made a difference. Yeah. Like, but you know, I, I've never had a reconstructive patient do that, you know, and, and, um, yeah. You know, I have some amazingly grateful reconstructive patients, so I'm not trying to take away from that, but I will say like some of the most going out of their way, like really grateful. And, and I was trying to think about why, and I think it may be that, you know, this is elective surgery. The patient was very actively involved in the decision to do this for themselves. Good. In reconstructive surgery, there's a situation where somebody was forced into because of an unfortunate situation, whether it be trauma, cancer, whatever it may be. And of course, they're grateful that you like put them back together in a way that looks similar to where they started and preserve their self-identity and stuff like that. But it, it didn't start by their choice. It didn't start by yeah. a positive situation. And so there's always a little bit of negative connotation behind it. And you made them, you know, you turned the lemons and made lemonade, which is fantastic. But when the patient helped make the lemonade, so to speak, or like was actively involved and and it's something that bothered them day in and day out because, you know, again, you don't have to do this. You're willing to take the risk and pay for it and all these like hurdles that allow you to like make that leap. And clearly it's very important to you then. And it turned out so well and you kind of made that thing that was nagging at them for so many years or for so long or so importantly, just magically disappear in a pretty seamless process.
that really makes somebody happy yeah. and grateful. I think yeah. that's what it honestly comes down to. That's terrific. And kudos yeah. to that patient and kudos to you for inspiring someone to do that. So yeah, wonderful. yeah, it was pretty, I mean, it was definitely memorable. Obviously, you know, that's what I'm talking about it now. <laughs> it's got to make you feel good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've just been a delight. You've been so helpful, I think, to listeners who are curious about the aesthetics of the neck and what can be done to rejuvenate that area of the body. Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about this subject? No, I, I mean, I think, you know, if you're listening to this, obviously you're interested, which is great. I think this is an important decision. Not everything is reversible. Do your research and homework on the front end, of course. Pick the person that you think is going to do the best job for you. Look at before and afters. See a lot of them. Make sure you're happy with them. Look at them from every angle, you know, especially with facial work. In this era with social media, there's just so much filtering going on. Um, there's marketing fluff, I like to call it. There's not real results. You can tell the difference. Just stop and look at it. Is it standardized views? Is the lighting the same? Is there a bunch of, you know, um, makeup? And look critically for lighting or even just camo focal lengths. You know, there's so many ways to trick, you know, your iPhone up close compared to like, you know, a long focal length camera. You can make a face look terrible with one camera and it's the same face and really good with another one. Mm -hmm. And so you gotta be the savvy consumer and don't let them outwit you. And if you wanna see if it's different mm -hmm. flash, always look at the pupils. Oh yeah. Pupils tell the story of the flash. If you see, you know, barely any light in one and then it overexposed and a bunch of flash in the other one, there, you know, it helps maybe hide some of the blemishes or... There's shadowing. Yeah, you know, shadowing. So don't let them trick you. And if anyone who's trying to, I would discount them automatically, honestly. I think that's just unethical and, and they're just, you know, yeah. if you have good results, you shouldn't have to try to hide, hide behind these tricks. That's helpful. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jason Rustayan, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, and uh, we really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.